So last week we finished the book of James, and this week we're going to start working through First Peter. And First Peter, as we read it, as you can tell, it's a letter. It's written by the Apostle Peter to Christian believers scattered throughout Asia Minor, which is uh, modern-day Turkey. And today what I want us to do is I want to begin by looking at just the first two verses. The greeting of the letter, the opening of the letter. In these opening lines, Peter introduces himself as the one writing the letter, an apostle, writing authoritatively, and then he introduces his audience, the ones that he's writing to. But here's the thing that I want us to note. Why we're having a whole sermon on just the greeting. Okay? When he introduces his audience, the one that he's writing to, he doesn't just say, like, this letter is being written to you Christians in Asia Minor, or to the believers in such in such a city. Notice how he describes them. He certainly says that, but he also says a lot more. He, it's this whole lot more that I want us to take a look at today because it's really significant and it's jam-packed. In these opening verses, Peter lays out an incredibly rich description of who believers are. And this description, okay, get this, this, this description, the way that, that Peter describes believers, who their identity, what their identity is, this is going to serve as the foundation for the rest of what the book has to say. In these opening lines, Peter lays out who we are as believers, our identity as believers, and it's out of this identity that flows the message of the rest of the book. You see, what, what he's saying here at the beginning is, it's not just some nice Christian language. Like, this isn't just some fluffy, meaningless phrases that he throws out here. Like, you just go through the motions, you just say this stuff when you write a letter. Like, these are just the sort of things you say, like... Back in the day, for example, I was taught by my grandma and by my mom, when you write a letter, you end it with love, so-and-so. Regardless of the fact that I always felt weird, like, I don't, I feel like this is, this is too intimate. Like, I don't even know this person that well. But I was just taught, you say love, so-and-so. It's just something you say. That's not what's going on here. What Peter is saying here is not just the fluff of an introduction. It's his definition of what a believer is. It comes up all throughout the book. This is who the believer is. This is what the church is, what the believing community is. And it's out of this special identity that we have that flows our special calling, our special lifestyle, a special outlook, a special people. Throughout this book, Peter says that if we're to understand how we are to live, we must understand who we are. And he describes us as those who are saved, and with that, those who are strangers. Those who are saved, and with that, those who are strangers. Saved strangers. Let's look at verses 1 through 2 again. He says this, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for the obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with His blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. 
For this sermon, I want to tackle things in two stages. Verse 1 and verse 2. In verse 1, Peter unpacks this idea of being strangers. And then, very much connected to this, in verse 2, he focuses, he focuses on us as a people who are saved. As we'll see, these are connected, but I'm, I'm, I'm splitting them apart for the sake of us tackling them. They're, they're connected, but we're going to tackle them in turn. And this, the, the big idea that I want us to get here, I don't want us to miss, is this. Okay, this is the big idea. We have a special identity as Christians. And it's because of that special identity that we have a special calling. We have a special identity as Christians, and it's because of that special identity that we have a special calling, a special lifestyle, a special way we live, a special outlook, things that flow out of who we are. This isn't going to be a sermon where we necessarily get into a lot of details of application, so that stuff is going to flow more in the rest of the sermon series as we go through the, the specific sections that really deal with some of that stuff. But here we're going to be dealing with more the big picture sort of thing. This is going to be a big overarching picture sort of sermon. And this, this big overarching idea in which all the smaller parts of the book fit in, I want to make sure we understand that, that the underlying idea of what's going on in the book so that everything else that Peter's going to say to follow is going to make sense for us as we understand it in this category, in these terms. Throughout the book, Peter, throughout the book, Peter, over and over, he's going to give us instruction about the unique way we are to live. And throughout the book, over and over, he roots this instruction in who we are, our, our identity, who we are as believers. And the reason this is important so we understand the practical the impact of something like this. The reason this is important, this is huge, okay? The on, it's only when we come to understand who we truly are as Christians, okay? Not when we just come to understand it intellectually, like we know how to give the right answers, and we can speak in the Christian language like we're supposed to, but when we really come to understand who we are, when we let that identity shape our view of ourselves, when we let this identity capture our vision of what the world is, our, our purpose in this life, our calling, our mission, why we exist, our unique place in the grand scheme of what God is doing from eternity past to eternity future, how we fit in, that's, that's how we understand the meaning of our life in that context. It's only when we get that, when this happens, that the instructions of this book are going to make sense to us. And, and this is important also because there's so many competing identities out there. There's so many competing things in the world telling us, this is who you are, this is what life is all about. And there's even, I would say there's even sub-Christian things, things that are said to be Christian out there, that they things that have a Christian veneer telling us this is what life is all about. And when we buy into these things, when they capture our imaginations, when, when we buy into what they say about who we are and what our life is all about, we get derailed. We start to let those things define who we are. We start to let those things dictate our self-understanding and influence the way we live our lives. And so in this book, 
Starting in these first two verses, Peter calls us back to consider who we are on the deepest level, from the truest outlook of reality, from God's big picture, how we fit in, what our role is, what he's called us to do. Nothing else can have a seat at the table here. All other competing claims to our identity must be gone. This is who we are. This identity and nothing else must define us. It must define our life. And so as I said, in these verses, Peter unpacks our identity, one, as those who are strangers, and two, as those who are saved. So let's begin with verse one, where he talks about our identity as strangers. And notice how he describes our strangeness. He describes us as elect, as exiles, and those belonging to the dispersion. As elect, exiles of the dispersion. Some of you have, might have different translations, and we'll talk about that. But those, those terms, okay, verse, verse 1, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, what's important to understand here is that these descriptions, okay, get this, this is going to be huge for the rest of the book as well, big picture stuff here. These descriptions, elect exile of the dispersion, come straight out of the Old Testament. The elect, exiles, those of the dispersion. This was a language that was used, you may remember, it was used to describe God's people in the Old Testament, Israel. Okay, and if we were to go look at verse 2, he talks about how we're foreknown. Like Israel was foreknown. That God uses that language, I foreknew you. In the sense that I, I, I foreknew that, I was to, that I'm, I, I'm choosing you, and I'm going to bring that into reality by choosing you in history. Or, or we could think of the mention of the Holy Spirit. In verse 2. That also reflects Israel type of language. Because Israel was, it was Israel who was promised the Holy Spirit. Okay? Or even sprinkled with blood like the end of verse 2. That when Israel became God's people. And when, they inaug- when the old covenant was inaugurated and started. They, the blood was sprinkled over the people. Peter is playing on Israel language. People of God from the Old Testament language. And so what he's saying here is. This is, this is people of God language. This is Israel language. It's it's biblical language to describe God's people. And what's interesting is that Peter is using this language to describe non-Israelites, non-Jews, what the Bible calls Gentiles. Notice in chapter 4, verse 3, we're going to be hopping around in the book of 1 Peter a bit. So go to chapter 4, verse 3, and notice how he describes these folks. He says, For the time... That is, pa- that is past, that suffices for doing what the Gentiles wanted to do. Like, your formal life before you became a Christian, yeah, that's enough. Like, you don't, you don't need to live like a non-Christian, like a Gentile anymore. Well, what's the point? He's assuming you are a Gentile. You were a Gentile. You lived like a Gentile. Why? Because you were one. You are one. Living in sensualities, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, lawless idolatry. The time is past to do that. Like, you're a Gentile and you used to live like one, but now that you've come to faith, you don't live like a Gentile anymore. You live like a Christian Gentile. These are Gentiles that he's talking about. Gentiles who Peter is describing with Old Testament Israel people of God language. And this is important. And it's going to come across all throughout the book. It's a big theological theme for Peter. Because Peter is assuming 
along with the entire New Testament, we could do a huge study on this if we had the time, that the believing Gentiles have been brought into God's people with believing Jews. That believing Gentiles have been made a part of God's people. Okay, it's kind of like, for an analogy, it's kind of like if I said, we won the War of Independence from Great Britain. Now, we here did not win any war. I didn't fight in it. You all didn't. We weren't even alive, right? But because I'm an American citizen, we can say that because I'm identified with that pedigree, with that heritage, with that people, this nation. So I could say, we won the, great, the War of Independence. And in a similar way, over and over in the New Testament, the Bible identifies the new community that arises after Jesus, the church. It identifies the church with Israel language. People of God language coming from the Old Testament. And the assumption is this, that the church, that is the, that the church is the true people of God. This, this, this is where you find God's people, in other words. The people of God, as it began in the Old Testament, has been transformed so that now through Christ, it includes believing Gentiles along with believing Jews. And all the promises and all the purposes that God had for Israel are carried on and fulfilled in the church. The church, then, we can say, along with the New Testament, is Israel transformed. It's Israel as she experiences a new covenant and believing Gentiles are brought in. And now this, this is a big topic and you might have a lot of questions that come to your mind. End times and what's the role of Israel and things like that. I mean, you can talk about those things later. But for the sake of brevity, let's just look at two verses um, to kind of help us understand this. So Ephesians 2, a big section. Um, in my experience, in my development of understanding these things, this was the most helpful passage for me. Um, Ephesians 2 verse 11 through 19. I'll read it and kind of just give some commentary as we go. So, Ephesians 2, 11 through 19, through 19. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, okay, Gentiles in the flesh, notice, you're not Gentiles anymore, you're a part of God's people, we can speak of you as a spiritual Jew, but Gentiles in the flesh, according to what you are physically. Remember that at one time, Gentiles in the flesh, you were called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in flesh by hands. Okay, You were called the uncircumcision. The circumcision was that which identified God's people. People called you the uncircumcision. You weren't part of God's people. You were called that by the circumcision, by the Jews, notice, which is made by hands. It's just a physical thing. Paul says elsewhere that true circumcision is spiritual. Verse 12, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, separated from the Messiah, literally. Messiah was Israel's Messiah. You were at that time separated from the Messiah, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, alienated from God's people, Israel. Strangers to the covenants of promise. Those promises were Israel's promises. And the sum of it is having no hope without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, okay, you who were once had no part of those things, had no hope of those things, you who were once far off have now been brought near. You've been made a partaker of those things by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace who has made us both, that is Jew and Gentile, he has made us both one 
and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. Okay, the laws that separated Jew and Gentile, they're abolished. He's made them together one people that he might create in himself one new man, literally one new humanity in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to those, to you who are far off, that is Gentiles, you are far off, and to those who are near, that is the Jewish people. For through him we both have access to one spirit, to the Father. One spirit, the spirit that was promised to Israel, that God said, I will pour out on you in the last days, that happened at Pentecost. And it not only happened to Jews, but then with Cornelius, it happened to Gentiles as well. So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens. That is, strangers to Israel. But you are fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. You've been made a part of his family, in other words. Built on the foundation of the apostle and the prophets, etc. So the point here is that Gentiles who were once had no participation in these things through what Christ has done in this new community has made believing Gentiles a part of the community along with believing Jews. Or we could look at Galatians 3. Galatians 3, and there's so much here as well. And the question of Galatians is who, who experiences these promises of salvation and how? Who gets these blessings that were promised from the Old Testament. And Paul says it's not by circumcision, it's not by the law, but it's by faith. And if it's by faith, that means Gentiles too. Gentiles too. And so we can look at a summary of the argument in this book in chapter 3, verses 28 through 29. In 20, 28, he says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither Jew nor Greek. Okay, Jew or Gentile, you might say. And he says, There is no slave nor free nor there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ. And what does he mean when he says there's no? Like, clearly Jewish people are still Jewish and non-Jewish people are still non-Jewish. In what sense is there no Jew and is there no Greek? 29. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring. And what does it mean to be Abraham's offspring? You're an heir according to the promise. You receive the promises originally made to Abraham that are eventually fulfilled in the gospel that are eventually the new covenant promises. In that sense, there's neither Jew nor Greek. They're all one body. And so the church, this new community of believing Jews and Gentiles alike, is the new transformed people of God. Not to the exclusion of Jewish people, but to the inclusion of Gentile people. This is the new transformed Israel. So she is the heir of God's Old Testament promises to Israel. And she takes the role of Israel. She takes on that which Israel in the Old Testament failed to be, a light to the nations, a people on mission. And this is what Peter is getting at here when he describes the church with his Old Testament Israel language of elect exiles being of the dispersion. The implication is we are to understand ourselves in those categories as God's people, in line with the purpose that he had for the people of God in the Old Testament. That's how we have to understand ourselves. That which God intended for his people to be from all of creation, and as he, as he, as he spelled that out in the Old Testament with Israel, 
what he intended Israel to be, a people on mission, a people who live distinctly as a light to the nations, that is what we are to be in the New Testament. So let's look at each part in turn. He begins with elect. Let me just take a drink of water. He begins with the word elect. Okay, to those who are elect. This is Israel language. That God had chosen Israel. Elect, like we elect people to presidencies. Okay, it just means we choose them. So elect is to be chosen. God has chosen you to be his people. And this is Israel language. We're chosen for two things. Two, or we could, we could simplify it this way, I guess we could say, for two things. One, to receive his blessings, his promises, his salvation. So we're, we are, we're chosen by his grace to be his people, and to be his people means to be his saved people, to, to have the inheritance, as Peter's going to talk about, the hope of salvation. But also, we're chosen, we might say, the other half of it, is that we're chosen not only to, by his grace to receive his grace, but then we're, we're chosen to be his servants, to be a people on mission. As, as the Old Testament, and as Peter talks about, to be a priesthood. So let's look at Exodus 19. If you turn to Exodus 19, this is a passage that Peter will actually cite in chapter 2. And he'll apply it to the church. Exodus 19. Okay, he's going to take this passage and he's going to say, this is the reality of the church. But this is a good passage for helping us understand what it meant for Israel to be God's elect. What did it mean for God, for Israel to be God's people? Verses 5 through 6. Now, therefore, if you indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, what? You shall be my treasured possession. You're, you're my treasured people. Special. Like, all of God, all creation, all, of, all humanity is God's people in one sense. Because he's created all of them. But, but God, there's another sense when we can speak of God's people. This is his saved people. There, there, is, there is people in a special way, his treasured possession. For all the earth is mine, and, and you shall be, get this, verse 6, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. By being a holy nation, with, and then what does he do in the rest of Exodus? He gives them a bunch of laws so to show them how they're to be distinct, how they're to be different from all the other nations. And in this way, they're to be a priesthood. As a nation, the nation had priests, and what did the priests do? The priests mediated between them and God. And so as a nation, Moses says, Exodus, that, that God, God speaking here, that you as a nation are to be like a priest to all the other nations. To show them what God is like. To, that you, by living differently, you reflect the nature of God. And so we come back to 1 Peter. We can see this applied to the church. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9-10. through 10. 1, Peter 2, 2, 1 Peter 2, verses 9-10. through 10. What does Peter say? Just that. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, special possession language. Notice, all, he's alluding to this passage. Why are we chosen? Why are we a special people? One, to receive his blessing, but then notice the next line, like we said, to be his servants. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what, that's what this priesthood is, that you're, you are to mediate God to the nations. 
Not that we take the place of Jesus, but that by pointing people to Christ, that's our role. We're a people on mission. We're people who, who show the way to God. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And there he's citing Hosea, which was also originally spoken to Israel. And so we see that this is how Peter understands us. He takes this identity, this Israel, this categories that were used for Israel, this special people that were to be strange among all the nations, a people that were on mission to the nations, even if it was more attractional than going out, like occasionally you see like Jonah, but more often it's all these laws make them seem so bizarre. It's to make the nations wonder. That's what we are to be. The early church, okay, we might think, but we're with us, like us getting down to us practically. We're just a group of, a small group of people who meet in a house, at least for the time being. <laughs> okay? We say, what, are, what, can, what sort of impact can we have in terms of mission? The early church didn't have a building, the early church didn't have massive budgets, seats of power, and worldly influence, but they turned the world upside down. They literally, like the emperors that spoke, I believe it's in the book of Acts, they spoke to Paul, that you're turning the world upside down. This is our mission. This is how we have to define our lives. Because this is who we are. Flows out our mission. And we need an all-hands-on-deck mentality. The mission isn't some peripheral thing that we get to if we have time. This is how we orient our life. This is what it's all about. I don't care what else we want to throw out there as more important, it's going to get shot down. This is our identity. We need to orient our lives around this. This is who we are. The second thing he talks about is being exiles and of the dispersion. And this, uh, the, So this is also Israel language because, as you may remember from the Old Testament, Israel was exiled out of the land. God brought them into the land, and then because of their disobedience, they were exiled. They left the land. And so they were sojourners, they were strangers, they were resident aliens in other lands. They were living in a country that was not their own. Um, for, for his application here with what First Peter is saying, like the ESV and the RSV translated exiles, not all, all of the other translations do that, and that's because exile might not be the best translation, because I don't think what Peter has in mind here that we've been banished due to our sin. Like there's some sort of punishment involved in us being exiles. Probably a better word here would be something like stranger or sojourner or alien. But the idea still is, Israel, as God's people, for a significant portion of their history, lived in exile. Lived as sojourners, as strangers, whether in Egypt or in Babylon or elsewhere. And that is how Peter says we should understand ourselves. Or he also speaks of being uh, of the dispersion. And the dispersion was also language used of Israel um, to talk about how they were dispersed among the nations. And so this is used also here of the church, that it goes with the idea of us being sojourners, that the church is the worldwide scattered community of sojourners. Okay, I don't think the idea here is, I have to clarify this, I don't think the idea here is that it's like this world is not our home and heaven is our home and we're just away from our, our heavenly home and eventually we'll live there forever. Because according to the Bible, heaven is not our home, this earth is our home, and God's actually going to recreate this earth and this is where we will dwell for all eternity. 
So like, for example, it's more the idea, the idea of us being sojourners, is more the idea that our identity is elsewhere. Our loyalty is elsewhere. Our allegiance is elsewhere. We live here, but all the allegiances that our fellow citizens have in America or wherever we ever find ourselves, those are different than the allegiances that we have. We are citizens of another place. As, as Paul says in Philippians 3, that our citizenship is in heaven. Not that that's somehow our home and like, oh, we just can't wait to die and get there. This is where God has made us to live. He's going to recreate this place. But we have a different allegiance. If I was to pull out my passport, spiritually speaking, it wouldn't say American. It would say Christian. And so I'm a, I'm a sojourner. I'm an alien here. I have a different allegiance. And this leads, as, as Peter's going to talk all throughout the book, this leads to a different way of lifestyle, that we should feel like aliens. And this comes out of the, out of the, the Israelite categories, that Israel, like we said, was to be a holy people. They had these bizarre set of rules and laws that made them so, seem so different. And the same should be true of us, a distinct holy people. So look at, at chapter 2, 11 through 12. We read 9 through 10, but look at the next two verses. He says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles. Okay, sojourners and strangers. Okay, what does it mean to be a sojourner and stranger? Abstain from the passions of your flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. There's a way in which we live differently. Okay, or we could look at chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. Chapter 4, verses 2 through 4. So Peter says, So as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices to do what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, and drunkenness, and orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery, and they malign you. I sure hope you feel like that in our culture. I do at times. There's a distinctness that we ought to have. Okay, when I was in... Um, when I was in... Washington, near Portland, I, I found out that they have this, that Portland has this slogan for their city, and like everyone has it on their bumper sticker, that says, keep Portland weird. And like people like that their city is weird, okay? Sometimes I feel like for Christianity, we need to have that slogan, keep Christianity weird. I think our tendency is to kind of tame it down and make it more palatable, make it more fit our American context, to make it fit the values and the morals, the expectations, the comforts that our society prizes. But we should feel weird. Like, we should feel super weird. Not just on, like, the hot topic issues, like what we think about homosexuality, but, like, how we use our money, how we use our time, how we view our marriages, etc., down to the deepest core level. And I think some of us come from contexts where, like more fundamentalist contexts, where sometimes it's talked about to be different from the world, don't be conformed to the world. Um, and oftentimes it's really petty things, like things that aren't biblical. All these extra rules get made. And so we tend to overreact against that. 
and we say, well, I don't have to follow those rules and it's not so much about being different in those ways. And then we overreact and we tend to just incorporate a whole bunch of things that really, if we were serious about following Christ, would not align with the allegiance we're supposed to have. I mean, think about the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says some pretty crazy stuff. Turn the other cheek. Don't worry about tomorrow, because today has enough in itself. Like, just trust God. God takes care of the sparrows. Don't resist the evildoer. Don't, don't, don't hesitate to give to, give to the one who, who's in need. The Bible is full of this stuff, and we should feel weird. If, if somehow we don't feel odd as Christians... If we find that like our values and the way we view life just matches up pretty decently with our non-Christian friends and coworkers and acquaintances, something is wrong. Like the call that Jesus has on our life in the Sermon on the Mount and elsewhere is not just slightly different, it's drastically different. We should feel super different. We should live super different. How do we how are we how are we to be salt and light in the world if we just blend right in? Do we, do we live differently? Do we have different values? Do we have different worldview? Different loves and affections? And a lot of this, I think, comes back to this idea, this, this treatment of Christianity like it's merely an add-on. Like it's merely an add-on. Like, like Sunday morning Christianity, but that's kind of it. Like we think of, I, like, so every four years we have the Olympics, right? Or every two years it switches, but... It's every once in a while, okay? And there's sports that none of us pay attention to ever within that four-year time period. Like, okay, America doesn't like soccer, unfortunately. I wish it did. But, like, every time the World Cup comes around, also every four years, America kind of maybe gets excited about soccer and then right afterwards doesn't care anymore, okay? Or we think of, like, some of the sports like America's bobsledding team or something. All of a sudden, we're, like, super into bobsledding if our bobsled team is awesome. Or, like, uh, like speed skating like we have good speed skaters occasionally no one cares at all about speed skating but the olympics come around and we got a and paul antoine or whatever his name was those years back everyone was into it and beyond that point though it doesn't affect the rest of our lives and i think in a similar way that's kind of how we treat our christianity like we'll show up to sunday and we'll talk a good game and we'll be really into it then but does it affect the rest of our lives does it does it just pervade this allegiance to christ in the most radical sense does it pervade the rest of our life does it make us different are the way we the way we spend our time the way we live our life is it affected along these lines if it maybe as a as a different illustration if you're into technology it's the difference between getting a new app on your phone which maybe every once in a while you might use Versus getting a new operating system. The way Christianity is to be is not an app that occasionally you use every once in a while. That occasionally comes up on Sunday mornings. It's a new operating system. It's an overhaul. And so with this, with this identity, flows also the call to suffer that we've read. And you probably noticed. So look, for example, at 221. 221, he says, for to this you have been called. Okay, this is who you are as a people. This is what you're called to. Because Christ also suffered for you, leaving an example. An example is probably not the best word, but model, paradigm. This is the pattern of your life. You follow Christ. You're, you're conformed to his image since you're conformed to his suffering. That if we're going to be different, we're probably going to suffer. 
Paul says that people don't enter the kingdom of God except for this sort of suffering. That the apostles counted it joy to suffer in the book of Acts because it showed their identification with Christ's suffering. And the, we li- I mean, we live in a, uh, a unique context where it's different than, say, we live in a country where there's, like, physical violence towards us, but there should be a level in which, like, I've thought about this. If we truly lived out the commands that Christ gives us, even in a very comfortable society where we don't face, we don't seem to face this sort of persecution that we think is envisioned in Scripture, I wonder if we would more if we actually did it as radically as the Bible calls us to. Like, I wonder if, if we would. So, to, so, so we really live this out, we should be expecting to suffer. That should be something we expect, something we rejoice in. Something that is part of our identity as a people who suffers without retaliating evil for evil. As we are God's people, Christ's people, we should expect to have Christ's pattern. And so we looked then at the second half. Our, we looked at our identity as those who are strange. Now we look at our identity as those who are saved. And these are connected, and I'm sort of splitting out for the sake of dealing with the verses in turn. But also, it's important, our strangeness is rooted in our savedness. We're strange because we're saved. And in these verses, Peter's going to lay out what we're chosen for. He says, remember, you're elect, you're chosen, why? And he gives these four descriptions. And what's also noteworthy here is he puts them in Trinitarian formula. He says, God the Father, the Spirit, and the Son. That salvation is a work of the Trinity. Each person working in concert. And so we begin with foreknowledge, which brings up this doctrine of predestination. He's spoken of elect, the fact that we're chosen. The Bible teaches we're chosen from eternity past. And now he speaks of this as being according to God's foreknowledge. And this language of foreknowledge, this is the nature in which we are chosen. It refers to the fact that our election is based on the purposeful, eternal planning of God. Sometimes people use foreknowledge or understand foreknowledge in the Bible to refer to the fact that God is like foreseen that we would believe. And so it's really not then God electing, it's really not then God predestining in any meaningful sense, but his simply responding to the fact that we determine we're saved. That's not how the Bible uses foreknowledge. Foreknowledge is used throughout the New Testament, not merely to to refer to the fact that God knows future things. Okay, like things are going to happen and he just knows about it. Okay, but it's used for those things that he foreknows precisely because he's purposed and planned them. Because he's predestined them. And so we could look at Acts 2, for example. You don't have to turn there, but I'll read it. This is a good text that shows this. In Acts 2, when it talks about, our, talks about God's foreknowledge, 2.23, it says this. This Jesus, Peter preaching here, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It's not that God just knew that Jesus would die. God sent his son to die. Like This was what he predestined to take place. According, notice the parallel, his definite plan and foreknowledge. And so we see foreknowledge here is bound up with divine planning. The point of this text isn't to say that God, just that God knew ahead of time, but he planned ahead of time, and he knew what he planned. So the point is, our election, our being chosen to be God's people, is by God's choice. 
He chose us by His grace from eternity past. Not by anything we complain, can, can, can claim. Not that we can say, well, I was smart enough to believe. No, it's all of God's grace that we are His people. As verse 10 said in chapter 2, you were, you were, at one point you were not His people, but now you are. Parallel with that. At one point you did not know His mercy, and now you do. But not only, as we said, are we elected to receive salvation and to receive His blessings, but we're also elected for the sake to serve Him to be his servants. We're called to something. And this, Peter says, our calling to be missional, to be different, this is part of, the, of God's plan that he had from us from all eternity past. It's not a mistake. It's not an accident. It's not some fringe topic. This is our identity, and it's an identity rooted in what God has been planning from all eternity. Like, tell me what other identity trumps that. This is God's plan for us. Nothing else can intrude here. This is our identity from all eternity, what God has chosen us to be. Salvation planned. And now as we look at the next phrases, we see not only salvation planned, but then we see how salvation is brought into reality with these three descriptions that describe our our conversion, that we're chosen for these things, to be converted. And first he describes it as in the sanctification of the Spirit, or by the sanctification of the Spirit. And sometimes we refer to sanctification like the work of, we've used it as a theological term to refer to the fact that we become more and more Christ-like. That's not necessarily always how the Bible uses it, So I think what he has in mind here is it's probably referring to the initial work by which which we're, we're made alive by the Spirit, being born again, being regenerated, being raised. And through that initial work of receiving the Spirit, having the Spirit's presence, it it we're said to be set apart, which is this word for sanctified. We're set apart. Um, but also it, it might have an idea that the continual effects of that spirit's work in our of the spirit's work in our life of setting us apart not only by by having that initial work of making us alive but the continual work of of of, of defeating sin in our life. He describes after that the fact that we are elected for obedience to Jesus Christ. And as you may have noted, there's two other places in the book where he speaks of this. And both times, obedience to Christ is actually referring to when we come to faith in Christ, interestingly enough. And every other time you see this phrase used throughout the New Testament, it, it refers to conversion, to when the point of, of obeying Christ by placing your faith in him. So like Acts 6-7 refers to, to many priests even becoming obedient to the faith, it says, obedient to the faith, referring to the fact that they became Christians. The idea of obeying Christ, in a sense, is the idea of like submitting to the gospel's claims. It's submitting, it's obeying to the reality that Christ is Lord and Savior, and that you are demanded to trust in Him for your salvation. And it's an interesting phrase. This obedience of Christ, this idea for conversion, it's interesting because it shows us, really importantly, that conversion is not just an intellectual thing. Like we just in mentally accept the gospel truths. But it's an actual obedience and submission to the gospel truths. To what the gospel claims about our need for salvation and how it's found in Christ. And with that is a submission to the Lordship of Christ. Christ is not only Savior, but He's Lord, and so we submit to Him as our saving Lord. 
And out of that, of course, would flow a life of obedience. Obedience characterizes our Christian life. And then finally he says that we're chosen for, notice he says, for the sprinkling of his blood. And if you're familiar with the Old Testament, you know that this blood sprinkling language comes out of the sacrificial system. comes out of how blood was used where they would manipulate blood for the sake of atonement and purification. And so Paul is, or sorry, Peter is, is speaking of Christ's death in these Old Testament sacrificial terms of death with, with blood here, that it's necessary to cleanse us, to make us right with God, and to purify us. In all of this, again, it points to the fact that we are to be different. We're a saved people. We're to be different. Look at verses, uh, chapter 1, verses 14 through 19. A final passage we'll look at. We look at a couple of these. We'll see them throughout the rest of the sermon series. But a couple where you see Peter using this idea of identity to spell out these instructions. And in verses 14 through 19, we see a lot of these themes coming together. He says, as obedient children. Notice that language, obedient. As those who have come to obedience to Christ. Obedience of the faith. As obedient children, what? Do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You're to be different. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in your conduct. And then he alludes to the way that Israel was to be different. This is Israel language. This is from Leviticus. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. That was true of Israel. That's true of you as the true Israel. You're to be different. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear through the time of your exile. Through the time where you're a sojourner, where you're living amongst people who don't have the same values as you, who don't view life with the same purpose as you do. Conduct yourselves with fear. Be sober-minded. Be on guard. Knowing that you were ransomed. Notice this. How were we ransomed? Ransomed from our feudal ways. Inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but just like Peter said in the introduction, that we've been that we've been elected for a sprinkling of Christ's blood. Notice here, we're ransomed with the precious blood of Christ. Like a lamb without blemish or spot. This is who we are. This is our identity. We need to live out this reality, then Peter says. We live out the purpose of God. God, the purpose that God had in foreknowing us to be his people, of setting us apart and distinguishing us by the nature of the Spirit's presence in our lives, as, as characterized by a, a, a submission to Christ as our saving Lord, and a life that is, has dis, is distinguished by purity, where one could say, you've been cleansed, you've been sprinkled by the blood of Christ. And so, the themes we've emphasized here... Um, the missional nature of the people of God. That we're a people who God intends to exist to be on mission. This is who we are, and out of that flows our evangelism. Our distinctness, our strangeness rooted in our saveness, and in our suffering. We're going to talk a lot about other themes throughout the sermon series, and we're only scratching the surface here, but I want to remind us of the big picture. That we have a special identity as Christians... And because of that special identity, we have a special calling. We have a special identity as Christians, and because of that special identity, we have a special calling. I'll remind you again, as I said in the introduction, that this is important because there are so many competing identities out there. So many competing things telling us who we are, what life is about. 
And when we buy into these things, when these things capture our imaginations, we get derailed. So we need to come back. We need to be taught. We need to think again who we are. This is our identity. And out of this identity flows a special calling. So, as we move to the Lord's Supper, we're reminded every week when we celebrate the Supper that this is an identity meal. This is an identity meal. Every Sunday we're reminded of our identity. As those, as the Supper, uh, the symbolism of the Supper shows that we are a people sprinkled by Christ's blood. That as the Supper, as, as Paul says, Um, in 1 Corinthians 11. In 1 Corinthians 11, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you, as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So every supper when we come, or every Sunday when we come together and celebrate the supper, we're reminded of who we are. We're reminded of the identity as those who are saved. Those who receive the promises of salvation that are symbolized in the supper. And so with the book of Peter, we're reminded then of the unique calling that we have that flows out of that.